Thanks so much, Zoe and Charles. And thanks for sticking around for the conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today we spotlight a company that has played a big part in shaping the built world of our islands. More than 100 years ago, it dredged the mouth of Pearl Harbor, as well as the Alawai Canal and much of the Honolulu Harbor waterfront. Now in a new joint venture, Hawaiian Dredging Construction Company will return to Pearl Harbor to modernize its shipyard. The Navy just awarded the contract uh, worth close to $3 billion a few weeks ago. Tomorrow, Dredging is holding a career fair at the Entrepreneur Sandbox in Kaka'ako as it prepares to scale up for the project. It needs workers. We talked to Manu Bermudez, Vice President for Human Resources at Hawaiian Dredging. I think historically, literally, this has come full circle for us. Back in the early 1900s, dredging actually did the primary drilling for the entrance to Pearl Harbor. And for us to be back there working on this close to $3 billion project, it's very, very exciting for us. It's it's a wonderful opportunity. It's a joint venture that we are part of with both Dragados and Orion. And so it's exciting for us to be working with them collaboratively together and identifying, you know, the top talent that we need, but also identifying opportunities for us to hire for our other divisions as well. We have five divisions within our organization, and then we also have operations in Guam, which have proven to be very successful. To think that You know, dredging actually helped to dredge that channel in Pearl Harbor way back when is pretty amazing. And then now that you'll be doing the modernization project with the dry dock, I mean, this is going to be a very long project. Correct. We anticipate it going anywhere between middle of this year, maybe two, potentially three years out. So again, it's the replacement of the dry dock three and just to help us look for the talent that we need and try and solicit and keep our people here and employed is an opportunity for us that we're working side by side with Drogados on. We had initially scheduled for career fair to take place on the 15th anyway, and this was planned early part of this year. And when the job was awarded to us, we identified that now we really need to kind of press forward and open it up to be able to hire for these specific positions but also to provide opportunities for people to work in some of our other divisions as well. So we have close to 900 employees. We've been doing business in Hawaii for over 100 years. The business started as Dillingham back in 1902, and so last year was a 120-year mark for us. It's interesting to think that, you know, the company has helped to develop the landscape here uh, in the islands. Yes, this job, it's a lot of historical places. There's a couple of places that we've worked on that are, you know, part of the National Registry of Historical Places, and that would include the King Kalakaua Building, which is now the main post office. We have the Honolulu Academy of Arts that is also part of that registry. But a lot of the other work that we've done is, you know, dredging of the Alawai. And we touched that again last year. We've touched over 5,000 acres of Honolulu's waterfront, going from Honolulu Harbor to Waikiki. So there's a lot of areas in Hawaii and across the islands that dredging has really worked in providing back to the state, to the community, and we, you know, would like to continue doing that for the next 100 years or 200 years or however long it may be. Some of these projects, Mm -hmm. you know, are um, civil work, 
but you folks have also done things in the hospitality industry, right? Yes. You've done the Prince Hotel, uh, Lanai, Manelli Bay, I think. Yes, we've done the Hualalai on the Big Island. We've done up until most recently the Alberge and Manalani on the Big Island. And so we are spread out. You know, there's a lot of work that we do hospitality-wise. We do commercial. We do, you know, our housing, military housing and defense facilities. We've done industrial parks and power plants. So that is all incumbent of our divisions that we have working for us that we identify where the work would be done respective to those divisions. And, you know, we are seeing more attention being put in the Indo-Pacific region. There are projects that are scaling up in Guam, and you mentioned you have a presence over there. Correct. So in our Guam operations, it's primarily joint ventures as well there, but there is an uptick in work. And, and, you know, a lot of work that needs to be done there to help facilitate the military needs. And so we have many opportunities there as well that we'll be looking to hire for here. And then we also do provide support to career and hiring events over in Guam, which we anticipate taking place in May of this month as well. I know in Guam they have a limited workforce, and uh, yeah. on certain projects, I think it's they have to get a waiver. I think it's called an H-3 waiver, if my memory serves me right. But what do we do here in Hawaii if we can't get the workforce that we need for the jobs that your company's been contracted to do? That's one of the primary concerns that we were looking at as well. But I think, you know, for this job specific, with the support and partnership of Dragado, we are all, you know, hands-on in identifying the support that we need. And I speak specifically about the manpower support we need to make sure that we are productive in the different phases of the job that we're going to be starting soon. So we, again, are working collaboratively with them in identifying certain positions or positions that we can potentially identify hard to fill. And so what we do want to do is ensure that we're, you know, providing opportunities for our people here to maintain work, to sustain their livelihood here, to hopefully be able to keep them home. But we also are being supported with Drogados because they are our partner in this joint venture and allowing them the opportunity to bring in some of their experts to help support this job as well. You know, we did talk with John Nauchi with the City Department of Transportation, and they'll be taking rail mm-hmm. over soon. And they talked about how they're in discussion right now with the military about, you know, the workers maybe using rail. And, you know, if you've got a workforce living nearby, that they can mm-hmm. use that means of transportation. Yes. I mean, do you see that you're going to have to house workers if they come in from the mainland? Potentially, yes. And and again, that's, you know, where we work on the finer details of that with our partner. If that is something that we need to be looking at closely, then yes, we will be providing that assurance to them. Do you know how many workers you folks are going to need? Yeah, it's a significant amount of workers that we're going to need in order for us to ensure that this is one of the most successful jobs, if not the successful job of dredging and its history. There's potential for a total of 150, give or take 10 to 15% of manpower projections. 
specific to this job, but that does not include some of our trade people, our union trade, which we are signatory to several of them. So it's tapping into the resources that we have available here and trying to facilitate the process of getting the necessary support that we need. Yeah, I mean, you want to hire local. Absolutely. We are trying to do everything we possibly can to keep people here in Hawaii and provide them the opportunities to continue working here. And so when we were notified of this job, we thought, okay, it's full steam ahead. Mm -hmm. We were very excited and still are very excited about this opportunity and working in this project and then thought, well, let's kind of shift the focus to make sure that we're looking at opening up these positions for our people who are interested in working on this job. But within our other respective divisions, the five other divisions, we're also hiring for work there because there's significant work that needs to be done in those areas as well. Just talking about it now just really gives me chicken skin because to know that things have come full circle, to Mm -hmm. know, you know, the amazing work that Hawaiian Dredging has done for our state and also in Guam, it's just an amazing opportunity and it's really special and something that I know that even though I'm not there doing the man hour work or the laborious work of it, that I was a part of this company and all that it contributed to yeah. you know, our state and our community. And that was Manu Bermudez, Vice President of Human Resources for Hawaiian Dredging. The company started by Walter Dillingham returns to Pearl Harbor for a $3 billion shipyard modernization project. Dredging has also been involved with rail as well as uh, the construction of all of our freeways. Tomorrow's career fair will be held at the Entrepreneur's Sandbox in Kaka'ako from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. We'll have links on the conversation page of our website later today. For our reality check today, we're taking a closer look at the gun that the Honolulu Police Department is considering as a new service weapon for the entire force. The pistol is the subject of numerous lawsuits by other police departments. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Jack Truesdale joins us. Good morning, Jack. Hi, Catherine. How's it going? Good. So, gosh, how how close are we to getting these guns? Um, It sounds like it's a ways away. Uh, Testing is going to be underway in the summer for HPD, uh, so there's still time. And so tell us about these uh, these pistols. Um, well, I'm not personally uh, that familiar with them. They are the Sig Sauer P320, used by the Army, used by a number of different police departments around the country and other law enforcement agencies. They do have a history, um, it's been reported, of unintentionally going off and sometimes wounding people in ways when they shouldn't. So that is looking to be a risk, potentially, depending on um, whether HPD decides to use them. It is a safety concern if they're discharging unintentionally. Right, and already I think at least six police departments across the nation have basically decided to stop using them um, because they would unintentionally discharge. And overall, I think it was like 33 different law enforcement officers across the country uh, have experienced like an unintentional discharge of the the P320. Well, what does the uh, union, the police union, have to say about it? Um, I think the police union at this point is just kind of, you know, waiting and seeing and um, 
you know, expect HPD to do its due diligence and testing, and there isn't enough information yet to, to come down with a hard opinion, you know? What do most police departments use here in Hawaii? So the Kauai and Maui use Glocks. Uh, Doe care officers with uh, the Department of Land and Natural Resources use Glocks. Correctional officers sometimes use the P320. Our sheriff use the P320, the one that can unintentionally discharge. Um, but spokespeople for both departments there said that they haven't had a record of it going off. Um, so that's good. <laughs> well, so we're already in use, um, but is there a chance that the company will somehow, you know, work in some kind of safety? They did an upgrade program a couple years back, and uh, they did a fix for the Army, but for civilian weapons, they basically kept selling the weapons uh, that weren't fixed, and then they later created an upgrade program where you could send it back, and, you know, the theory was that it would help prevent them from firing unintentionally, but actually a number of the cases of the gun going off unintentionally were with the upgraded weapons. So um, the risk seems to still be there. Okay, but HPD is still kind of looking at it at this point. Uh, they haven't actually signed a contract for these things yet? Yeah, no contract yet, but it was listed um, in their budget budget request to the mayor under a kind of uh, confusingly worded label of priority items not included in the budget request um, that they were looking to buy about 2400 of these new pistols for about 3.8 million but yeah nothing nothing more set in stone at this point okay all right we'll just wait and see and hopefully um we don't have any unintentional discharges but thank you <laughs> yeah that's right but thank you so much jack yeah thanks Catherine. we've been talking with uh civil beat reporter jack truesdale you can read his story on civilbeat.org We're back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. You know, April happens to be Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and it was marked here in Hawaii by a recent sign-waving event that included the Kapi'olani Sex Abuse Treatment Center and its partners. The conversation Stephanie Hahn talked with the center's Lynn Costales Matsuoka about its resources. I note there was a statistic that a large percentage of the people treated in Kapi'olani Sex Abuse Treatment Center are between the ages of, I believe, 14 to 17. I am aware that there is a health education requirement here in the state of Hawaii. And does this curriculum require some kind of teaching of sexual assault, abuse, or consent? Your center seems to be involved in this educational measure, so. Yes, the Sex Abuse Treatment Center does have K through 12 curriculum that we roll out to the schools, um, any school, public or private. There are three bands to our curriculum. One is to the students themselves about sexual violence. One is to educators about sexual violence and disclosures and how to respond to that. And the other ban is to parents um, if they want to have more information or education about sexual violence. The mandate within Department of Education is not about sexual violence. It is more health education. What we provide is very specific to sexual violence versus um, sexual health education, which the DOE 
does do, but the two are not necessarily the same. Yeah, I'm surprised that it isn't considered part of the health uh, curriculum. I had read that about 25% of teenage sexual abuse and assault incidents are perpetrated by another adolescent. You know, what do you think is behind this? How can parents get involved? What can we do about this pretty high rate? And that is concerning. I think that's concerning for us all. And that's why SATC is really big on trying to push out their K through 12 curriculum. And we run a expect respect campaign um, where we are trying to message to not just adolescents, um, middle school kids, uh, high school kids, as well as young adults about the importance of respecting one another, getting proper consent, what sexual violence is. A lot more juveniles are engaging in sexual behaviors that may not necessarily be consensual sexual behaviors, um, and that is concerning. So we're trying our best to get out into as many schools to reach as many students and also to reach the parents, you know, that might be interested in getting that curriculum. Right. Like I said, again, it is something different than what the sex education happens in school. Right. So this might be a subject area that parents might have to address within the home. Is that what you're saying, potentially? Absolutely. Yeah. I think parents, you know, could definitely, um, it all begins with talking, educating your kids, talking to your kids, letting them know about healthy relationships, about healthy boundaries, about getting affirmative consent in many ways before they engage in sexual behaviors. And the importance of just respecting the boundaries that everyone has placed for themselves, whatever that may be. And I think those are important messages that we need to teach our kids. And we probably don't say enough to kids about how sexual violence is often perpetrated against them by someone that they know, whether that's another juvenile or someone in their circle of friends and family. Yes, I read that about 90 percent of the incidents have to do with, uh, are perpetrated by someone who's an acquaintance or who knows the child. Is that correct? Under 18? That is correct. Yeah, that, yeah, that is correct. That most of the sexual assaults that occur is perpetrated by someone that the individual knows. And, and we don't say it enough um, that it's often perpetrated by someone that the victim knows. Um, I think most people think of sexual violence and they think of that stranger danger situation, right. which of course happens. That definitely does occur in our community, and, but the majority of sex assaults are in fact perpetrated by someone that is close to that victim. So a lot of parents might have a lot of challenges when talking to a teenager. I think that this can be a really inhibiting awkward discussion for many parents. Do you have any do you have any advice for parents out there who who might want to have this kind of discussion and they don't even know where to begin? Yeah, it, it can be very difficult and like you said, um, very awkward for some parents to talk about. But I think it really begins with just having open communication, doing your best to be non-judgmental, just doing your best to be open starting that conversation in, in little ways. Half the battle is really listening and not mm. trying to interject, you know, our own thoughts and opinions on what 
should or should not be, but really just having that kind of open conversation um, with our kids um, and giving them and creating that safe space for them so that they can come forward, letting them know that you're there for them, letting them know that you're willing to listen to any concerns as awkward as it may be, and that they will provide that support regardless of what the situation may be. Because I think that's for a child, they're always worried about that. But I think if a parent can just really be open about that and really provide that supportive safe space, that will allow the conversation to begin. With regards to sex assault, I think a lot of that really is some fear that somehow I am going to be blamed Mm. for the decisions that I made that culminated in this sex assault. Somehow I have a part in what happened to me. And that really is not the right message that anyone should have because it's not about the decisions that we made. Sex assault is really something that happened to you regardless of what decisions you made. It is something that someone did to you. There's almost nothing that you could have done to change that, right? And I think a lot of victims feel that way. You know, it's what I did, what my, what decisions I made that led up to this, and somehow I'm going to be blamed for this. And I think that is truly one of the reasons why they don't come forward. I mean, it's a reframe of this idea, as speaking of it as an act of violence. I was thinking about Sexual Assault Awareness Month, how there was the gathering of people in the Capitol, along with the police, the people from your center, and how it was good to get this message out in public. We really wanted to send a message to those who are impacted by sexual violence, um, whether it's a friend, a family, or themselves for that matter, to know that there is a community of partners that responds to sex assault, that is here to support those who have been impacted by sexual violence. The first step that an individual can take if they have been impacted by sexual violence is they can reach out for services at the Sex Abuse Treatment Center. Our hotline is 808-524-7273. We're a 24-hour hotline. They can always reach out or they can go to our website, which is satchawaii.org. We want to make sure that they're safe, so if they are needing safety immediately, then they should call 911, and the police will respond to them, and we'll also connect them with services here at SATC. Hope that people do call. There are people here who are willing to help you. Thank you so much, Stephanie. We appreciate having the talk. And that was HPR Stephanie Hahn talking to Lynn Costales Matsuoka, Executive Director of the Kapiolani Sex Treatment Abuse Center. A link to more information about the center's resources will be on the conversation page of our website later today. You know, scientists at Hawaii Island's Keck Observatory recently observed two significant events in deep space. The first, an impending collision between two supermassive black holes, or quasars. 
and the other a strange streak of baby stars and gases stretching for 200,000 light years, possibly the trail left behind a fleeing black hole. So what does that mean? Well, the conversations Russell Subiano talked to Keck Observatory's chief scientist, John O'Meara. And so a quasar is a supermassive black hole, so a black hole millions to billions times the mass of our sun. And we can't see black holes themselves, that's why they're called black holes, but if there's a lot of material near the black hole and it starts to spiral into the black hole, it gets really, really hot, and hot things make a lot of light. And so for quasars, there are these really giant black holes with a lot of material nearby them that's getting really hot. And these are some of the brightest things in the universe. And historically, we've used them as very distant, bright background sources to do a lot of of measurements in, in astrophysics. But the other thing about supermassive black holes is that they tend to live inside of galaxies. So we know that galaxies have these supermassive black holes, and it turns out that most large galaxies like our Milky Way and and other galaxies have these giant beasts in the the middle of their galaxies. So why is this even an interesting discovery? And the reason why is because we also think that most galaxies over billions of years form by having smaller galaxies merge up into bigger things. So there are these massive collisions of galaxies smacking into each other, and then it slowly settles out and you get a bigger galaxy. We believe that this happened for the Milky Way. We can still see it in work. For our galaxy, we have these satellite galaxies called the Large and Small Magellanic Clouds, which are easily seen from the Southern Hemisphere. You can, On a really good conditions, you can see it from Hawaii. But these little galaxies are eventually going to run into the Milky Way. So we know that galaxies form up like this, but we very rarely ever see it in action, right? Because these processes take millions to billions of years happening. And the quasar period of a galaxy is usually when the galaxy is young, because there's all this stuff near the black hole, it's dumping onto the black hole, and then the black hole kind of clears its space around it. This discovery was really neat because we caught the two things in action for young galaxies at one time. This collision of big galaxies making an even bigger one and quasars going off. So it was luck. It was lucky to see the universe and for these galaxies in a hugely impactful part of their life. And the reason why it's important to us here is it helps complete the story of how our galaxy got to be as big as it is. Because we can see these processes in the younger universe and see it happening for for other galaxies, that gives us confidence that the archaeology that we use with stars in our own galaxy that says it was built up out of these mergers is probably right. And so that's why it's it's really cool to see these things. But both of these stories that, that we're talking about today are interesting combinations of really great science and luck, Yeah. right? So... Quasars are pretty rare on the sky compared to, to, to stars or other galaxies. Catching two of them inside a galaxy actively about to smack into each other is even rarer. So it was luck that they discovered this thing. And then wonderful science flowed from then studying it. That's in many ways the story of a lot of the great discoveries in, in astronomy and astrophysics is we build wonderful tools, big telescopes on the ground and in space, We go out and sometimes we find stuff that we just either got really lucky or completely didn't expect. Now it means that we can take the models that we have and push them even harder and try to get lucky again and find new things. 
So what will happen when these two quasars collide or merge? What's going to happen is that these two giant beasts, those two things are going to get closer to closer to each other. They're going to spiral in towards each other, and then they're going to merge. And when they do, they're going to release huge amounts of energy. Most of it's going to be gravitational energy. So you may have heard of gravitational waves. When this happens, right, there's so much energy wrapped up in these black holes, but that energy gets released in a lot of gravitational wave energy, and then it will slowly coalesce and form a larger black hole at the center of that galaxy. You don't want to be in the galaxy that that's in when that happens. Anything nearby on a galactic scale is going to have a really bad day. And this probably happened, or something similar to this happened early on in our Milky Way as it violently merged up and maybe some black holes formed together. And there might have been a quasar period in the early Milky Way, and that would have been a nasty environment to be in. But it's interesting to contemplate how violent and weird the early galaxy that we live in might have been based off of looking at images and and spectra like this of other galaxies. The second observation was this strange streak of baby stars and shocked gas measuring about 200,000 light years long, possibly the trail left behind by a fleeing black hole. What are astronomers seeing in that event? So this one is really exciting because it is definitely a case of looking on the sky, going, what the heck is that thing? And then following up and realizing that it was the first time we've ever seen something like this. So what happened here, at least what we think has happened, this is a very early result, and I can guarantee lots of other people are going to try to look at this particular object on the sky and try to understand it because it's such a provocative result, is very similar in its early history to what we were just talking about with the quasars, black holes spiraling in towards each other. But sometimes, at least in simulations of the universe, they spiral in, but one of them gets kicked out. They come in, they gain a lot of energy off of each other, but they don't quite merge, and it gets kicked out. And it will smash into, along the way, the gas surrounding that galaxy. And when it does that, it compresses the gas and forms stars. And the black hole had that stuff around it, it smacks into it. And so you see this trail similar to the wake of a boat that is indicating, you know, that there's this violent collision of gas and it's spreading out through time. And so you're seeing younger stars at one end of it and older stars at the other. And that's an indication that something went through and episodically just triggered star formation. So the way I like to think about it is a lot like a boat going through water. When the boat goes through water, it compresses the water right in front of it and then leaves a a wake behind it. So you could imagine never seeing a boat but believing that a boat was there because you see that compressed stuff in front of it and this effect back behind it of the wake of the boat. And that's exactly what happened here. We can't see the black hole, but it's such a narrow feature. It's aimed directly away from a galaxy. And there's so much star formation that there had to be something big doing the colliding. So we're inferring the presence of a boat by looking at the wake, which in this case is the stars. And it it really was a case of them looking at a set of Hubble Space Telescope images and going, man, what is that? Do you think that could be blank? And then taking telescopes on the ground, and they used the Keck telescope in this case, to study the stars. It's really interesting to see the things that we've been simulating with computers for a few decades now actually be observed on the sky. It helps us validate our models for how the universe works. 
Thank you so much for your time, John. And thanks so much for explaining it in a very relatable way, too. There's always the fear that we won't be able to understand the explanation. But I mean, I I, tried really hard not to use, you know, kiloparsecs, megaparsecs, (laughs) the instantaneous star formation rate or the oxygen three knot with the luminosity of 1.9 times 10 to the 41 ergs per second. I mean, you know, who cares about that? I'm, I'm really glad you reached out and super happy we could do this. That was Keck Observatory Chief Scientist John O'Meara talking with HPR's Russell Subiano about two recent black hole events observed by astronomers. And that is our show for today. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us all on Monday for more of the conversation.